1: Hello and welcome to episode 112. Last week, I started talking with Jansu Janja, who is calling in from Turkey. She is a philosopher and AI ethics consultant and founder of the AI Ethics Lab, prior to which she was on the full-time faculty at the University of Hong Kong and an ethics researcher at the Harvard Law School and many other organizations. She has given over 100 talks on AI ethics, including her TEDx talk, How to Solve AI's Ethical Puzzles. And she was also listed as one of the 100 Brilliant Women in AI Ethics. Last week, we talked about her journey coming from the field of medical ethics into AI ethics, what the experience of a company working with the AI Ethics Lab is, really getting an idea of what it's like on the front lines of making ethics work in the use of AI right now. Without further ado, let's get back to the interview with John Su Janja. So you mentioned a couple of Key words there: control and privacy, and the impact of AI systems, perhaps on how they influence people's thinking. And I know you've done some work with search engines yeah. and their impact on ethics. Could you describe what you've done in that respect? Sure.
0: I mean, I think the something that is very interesting is our life. Our access to information, our access, a lot of the questions that we are asking now is through some sort of search engine, which is it obviously was not the case before the search engine. So it's, don't just think about the, the typical ones like Bing and Google and the you know DuckDuckGo or whatever one is your favorite, but also think about the vertical ones. You know, like you go to, in order to find the best hotel or the best plane you're probably using some sort of vertical search engine or if you go to YouTube or Facebook you're using another search to search within their system so the search engines are really like everywhere to and they are they are great of course because without them there would be this like jungle of information out there we never can sort through and get anything out of so we definitely need them we know that we need them we all like them or should like them (laughs) if not but like the way that they show information that they sort this world around us is extremely relevant to how we make decisions so any question that you're asking right if this is about should i get a vaccination this question through some sort of search engine either you're asking this you know in social media which is gonna show you different answers either or platform like youtube Maybe you want to watch videos around this question, or you're going to ask this in a search engine, so in a, something like Google. And imagine the different options, right? Like, first of all, the engine might just show you information that are just plain out false, wrong, which is a problem. Then you are going to make decisions on those on that information, especially if you don't know what you don't know. If you don't know that there is, like, like vaccination is an easy topic in a way. I mean, it's horribly complicated, but easy in the way that you know You have some idea of who are the authorities. Like you could figure out whom to look for. But many questions, we don't even know who is the authority. Like who should be asked these questions? So the way that the information is served to you or the nudges that are provided as you're searching. So the autocompletes that are provided as you're searching, for example. All of these impact your decision-making. And the decision-making, basically, that's just saying that we are free individuals, we have control on our lives, on our bodies, implies that we make our own decisions. We are somehow manipulated in this process. It is as bad as being just Mm. manipulated, forced, and course. So we are really talking about a major issue here. And I think we came to really realize this with the vaccination, with conversations, I mean, way before COVID, you know, like this was a big topic about measles vaccination, for example, but also the big 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 event of the elections both in the uk and in the us and going back to my personal history narrative of you know being in hong kong and then finding ai ethics lab ai ethics lab really worked out it succeeded because cambridge analytica and facebook scandal happened because that was the time that people said we want to talk about this now who who are we going to look for and that's when AI ethics app became relevant. Otherwise, I could have been doing this on the side forever and no one
1: would know. And that opens up so many avenues of exploration because the search engines basically answer the question of what's the web page that you're most likely to be looking for? And the recommender algorithms show what conversation are you most likely to be interested in spending your time on? And now these things are starting to converge in that we're likely to get search engines that are conversational, that involve chatbots and something like Lambda, for instance. And then the question is going to be, well, what's the bias in that conversation like? Because there's so many more dimensions it could occupy than just here's a web page. And The recommender algorithms of places like TikTok and YouTube have been dissected and found that they basically radicalize the audience, take them in the extreme of whatever their tendencies are, because that's what will get them to spend the most time on it. And that's influenced those elections, as you were talking about, and the measles vaccination and, and other conversations that were only painfully familiar with. And even after this came out that this breakage of democracy happened because of these algorithms, I haven't seen a whole lot of change. I haven't seen any visible change in how these things happen. It still seems to be going along. Is this a conversation that's happening behind the scenes anywhere? I'm just not privy to how these companies might be trying to fix their ethical problems?
0: Definitely, there's a conversation around this, a huge conversation around this behind the scenes, but sometimes also catches the public attention. But this is a major question, and everybody is aware of it. And I would say, actually, to my knowledge, at least, most of the companies that I know who are the relevant parties to this discussion are trying to find some way forward, some solution. I don't think the problem here is they are ignoring it. It used to be that. But then, you know, it became, no, this is not a problem that they are ignoring anymore because the implications are so clear. You know, when an ethicist says here, this might be an implication, it's thing. When you actually realize that the world has just taken a different course, well, that makes it, that has an impact. But it is a tough question. I mean, it is a very, very difficult question. The way that I started working on this one was we wanted to use this actually as a use case when we were designing a workshop. So we wanted to design this interactive, hands-on workshop for non-philosophers to really make them walk through an ethical decision-making. And I mean walk through. So we we designed a floor game where they physically have to like, as they make decisions, they move, like physically move in the room. And there are a lot of opportunities to discuss how to solve the question, but sort of really trying to make them dissect the question, understand the ethical, you know, push and pulls within the question, but also start connecting it to their own expertise on, well, how can I technically solve this question using what I know? So we use this as a use case and we worked really like anytime you create this particular workshop, what we call the mapping is one of those that require a lot of like pre-work because we the the ones who are leading the workshop we have to know all possible scenarios so we can keep leading the group so we dissected this question like really in all pieces it's a hard one we don't have an answer like after all of Mm them we just don't have the answer to say and here is the right thing to do it's extremely difficult we can say some of the things that are completely wrong Mm. and and a lot of the times the solution is really difficult. you know like We understand that, all of us, I think, understand that we don't want fake news. Whatever your fake news radar is catching, everyone agrees we don't want fake news. We might be calling each other's news fake news, but we are still agreeing that we don't want fake news. But it's so difficult to actually say, okay, here's how we are going to implement a technological structure without causing complete violation of freedom of speech. And get rid of fake news. It's just incredibly difficult. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it is good that we are talking about it. It is good that we are pushing the companies. We are pushing philosophers to come up with solutions and not just think forever. But the truth is these are questions that are not going to have easy answers. We are going to go with trial, error, and iteration of getting better, (laughs) But that's like, same with the search engines, same with the fake news. It's just incredibly difficult questions to solve because there are trade-offs, right? That's the thing, because the trade-off is, as you said, you know, when I am on YouTube or Facebook, I don't want the platform to completely take advantage of my interest in cat videos, but... I want to see cat videos too. You know, like, I don't want them to educate me. I'm not on, I mean, I chose YouTube over Coursera at that moment for a reason, right? Like, I'm not looking for education. It is a trade-off. It is a hard balance. And it's just really difficult to figure out which way to do this. But there are ways. Mm. There are ways of getting better, at least.
1: Because it has so few inputs. All it knows is what you type in the box. And your history, a huge amount of things it knows psychometrically about you, but other than what you want right now, all it knows is what you type in the box. I'd like to visit the Asilomar principles briefly because I've been fascinated by that for a while. In 2017, a few dozen AI researchers, philosophers, ethicists got together in Asilomar, California and hammered out what I believe was a result of a a lot of heated discussions, but 23 principles for the ethical development of AI going forward, which read really well. And then apparently nothing happened with them. No one came out with saying, hey, we have a stamp on our company that says Asilomar compliant or anything. Just from your point of view, did that do any good? Uh, Did it do anything?
0: (laughs) I... And prickly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they're like, what would be the counterfactual if a slumber event never happened? But I mean, I completely see your point. I mean, it's really hard to say that. And as a result, now we have this great outcome. You know, I don't see that either. Um, I think, so principles are interesting topic. I did a project on this and then I kind of got stuck with this question, uh, with this principles approach. Because they are, on the one hand, principles are super useful because they are good rules of thumb. On the other hand, they conflict. They always conflict. So I think that's one of the reasons that it's very difficult to say that now we abide by Islam principles. Because what does it really mean to say that, you know, let's say looking at the principles right now, I think, you know, you have the safety and transparency and responsibility, but they will conflict in complex cases, right? So there will be cases where safety, increasing the safety will result in decreasing the transparency or, or many of such trade-offs. So it cannot be really such that we rely on the principles, but we can take the principles as a starting point. So I'm just going to go very briefly to a little bit of history of the principles because I think this is relevant, actually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Again, I connect AI ethics to medical ethics so much because medical ethics is a very well established applied ethics field. And there are so many ways that they can learn from medical ethics, but also we can learn from the mistakes of medical ethics. So the principles approach was actually, again, in in 1970s, came out from the big debate about research ethics, experimenting on humans. How can we do the medical experimentation in a way that is not horrible and inhumane? Because until the 70s, the cases are just you know, fascinatingly horrible. So what happens is that in the U.S., they put together a working group, the government puts together a working group, and two philosophers who are engaging with this working group, who are in this working group, also on the side, write a book, which then becomes a big, like a basically a a very important book of the field of bioethics, the principles of biomedical ethics. And there they have principles, which gives us respect for autonomy, non maleficence so do no harm, and beneficence, do good, and justice. So these are the principles. And then they come up with like some applications. Like informed consent is an application of autonomy because by making sure that we get informed consent, we are allowing individuals to exercise their autonomy. They can make decisions about their, whether or not they are going to join this study and so on. But something that, you know, while I was in medical ethics, I was very annoyed by the principalism because there is this approach in the practitioners among physicians that if they know principles, they're going to solve everything. And unfortunately, that never works because any complex case has conflicts because these three principles, these three core values capture the whole of moral and political philosophy, like literally the whole thing and theories conflict. Kantian ethics does not agree with utilitarianism. Rawlsian theory of justice does not agree with the egalitarianism. So there are conflicts within our theories and the principalism just basically brings them all together and say, here you go. But what I think a sum our principles are trying to do, and then many other AI ethics principles came out, is a starting point. If you know that you should think about safety, you are gonna ask some questions that are relevant. And if you think that you should think about transparency, you are going to ask some questions that are relevant. And when they conflict, well, then leave the principles, go do the ethics work. And I think for that reason, you know, in a very long answer to your question, there is no step because ethics is a very difficult thing to give a stamp on. The process, I think, is what we should really focus on with the help of these principles, of course, but the process of have you checked these questions? Like, have you checked the transparency concerns? Have you checked the safety concerns? Have you taken mitigation measures? Some say, Did you put in place safeguards if you recognize that there's a privacy issue, there's a transparency issue? So looking at the process, I think, is what the principles should lead us do. And did they? So now we have easily over 100 sets of principles. On AI ethics app, actually, there's a page called Dynamics of AI Principles. You can... We have an interactive page. You can play around with the principles, see how they developed over time on the map and all of those things, compare the summaries. So all of these principles, did they help? I think in a way, yes, because at least they gave the non-philosophers some keywords. You know, when we are talking about the bias or when we are talking about algorithmic bias or, you know, the identified data and those things, I think those are useful keywords to keep in mind. But unfortunately, they take us only so
1: far. Very interesting. The Selimar principles were, I think, more forward-looking than perhaps today's things. They didn't get into the sort of nitty-gritty detail of issues of bias and privacy that are being negotiated right now. So one thing I want to talk about, because everyone else is talking about it, is ethical questions raised by... Blake LeMoyne's assertion that Lambda AI had become sentient. And I don't know that anyone aside from Blake LeMoyne believes that, uh, but let's use it as a springboard anyway. It reminds me of a, a hypothetical case that was raised some years ago by Martin Rothblatt, who litigated a mock trial of what would look like exactly the same case, a an AI created by the hypothetical Exibit Corporation that announced that it'd become sentient and didn't want to be turned off. And Exhibit said, you belong to us and we can do that if we want. And it went to court. Again, mock trial. Didn't really happen. All the facts were imaginary, but the case was litigated and judged as though it were real. And she won. At some point in the future, that will become an issue where there's more debate than just one person claiming that some AI is sentient and everyone else saying you're wrong. And what sort of ethical guidelines or what sort of rails do we need in a company to help with? Actually, I've got to mention this. This also reminds me of I was at JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab, years ago when the question of cold fusion came out, when it looked like, researchers had discovered a way of making fusion happen with, I think it was palladium or platinum metals. And it looked like it would be really easy to create a fusion reaction. And and this memo went out to everyone at JPL saying, because it's a research lab, right? Saying, if you're going to do this, then here are the guidelines. And if you start to observe this level of neutron activity, turn it off and call plant protection, (laughs) And I sort of imagine a parallel sometime in the future, somewhere like Google that says, if you're creating conscious artificial intelligence with free will, if it exhibits these capabilities, contact the ethics department. If you can project yourself forward to an era where that's plausible, what would you tell the ethics department to do? Run
0: away. (laughs) (laughs) It is an extremely difficult question. Extremely difficult. I mean, and I think there are multiple hard questions packed into this. So the most obvious one, of course, is how can you tell when something has a free will or something has consciousness, right? The consciousness is extremely difficult to define even, like philosophically, consciousness is extremely difficult to define in philosophy of mind. So we are already struggling with the concept, you know, what makes us the way that we know that we are, all the thought procedures and so on. And then the next question is, of course, put aside consciousness, but what gives something a moral status? So is it being sentient? Is it being... So what is the thing that we are looking at? Is it just free will? Like, do we care only when the thing has the thing has free will? Or do we care as soon as it says it hurts? You know, like, this, this is enough. So... The first question is, I mean, how do we recognize, how can we tell that we are not being fooled by some word generator versus something that is authentic as the sentient beings that we know? And I'm saying this like purposefully, so wait, because we don't know what is so authentic about us, you know, like, yes, we have not assembled ourselves or the other animals, but we don't, we also don't know like, okay, so what is it that makes us special? Uh, Or that makes us worthy of moral behavior, like we should be treated morally, why? Or what animals should be treated morally, why? And also going towards animals, do we really, like, how far do we go in treating animals morally? I mean, we know that we are failing on that front miserably. So the second question there is that once we recognize what are the incentives around treating that thing morally, humanely? Or just like ignoring that. So that's one set of questions, right? But once, let's say, we realize, okay, this thing has what it takes to be a moral agent or moral subject, actually, in this case. The second question will be, what is it to treat that thing morally? Because we know, like, when I engage with a human, I know from my experience what it means to hurt you or violate your autonomy or those type of things. Like, I know the harms. I understand that from my own behavior. But it might not be the same. You know, the obviously, the pain might not be the same type of pain that we are thinking about. The death might not be relevant if you are connected to, you know, if you are a being that is connected to all the other AI systems around the world, maybe you don't even die when, you turn, when somebody turns you off here. What is death for them? What are the things that we consider bad? Are they bad for them? And what are things that we don't even understand? Maybe that's horrible for them. So how do we even understand the scale of harm and moral violation in relation to AI systems? And I think the final thing to keep in mind is that if the AI becomes such that it is like us in a way, you know, it has moral agency and morals, it is both able to act morally and it should be subject to moral treatment, but it is different from us. Where does that put us in relation to the AI system? How should the AI treat us? Now that it is not just doing what we are telling it to do, but it is exhibiting a free will towards us. Should the AI treat us like we treat the animals? Is this something that we are comfortable with? Should the AI treat us like we treat our family? Or, you know, like the question of this, we don't engage with non-human beings in the same way that we engage with human beings. We are not expecting the same behavior from non-human beings as we expect from humans. So what does it mean in terms of our moral treatment? Yeah, so I guess my answer to the ethics team is that, oh my God, they are in big trouble.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ask for more money. Well, and this centers on Google, and since so much attention is being given to them, I've got to believe that the sort of conversation we've just had has been repeated a thousand times there in the last few weeks probably mostly informally. But since Google is also ground zero for a lot of this conversation, they had an experience with an encounter with their own ethical judgment when it came to the Department of Defense and the Maven contract. And their employees apparently revolted on that and said, we don't want you to do this. And Google apparently capitulated. And I wonder, what does that incident say about the power of employees to change the direction of a company through an ethical stand.
0: Yeah. That case is a good case to again show multiple aspects of AI ethics in action in a way. So understanding that as a being a part of those who are developing the AI system or using the AI system or being subject to the AI system, you know, like as the consumer as well as the population, we don't have to just take it as it comes, but we can raise our voice. We can make our opinions heard if we systematically try to do this. If We don't just, you know, complain ourselves, but we take action and we systematically take some position on this. That is a great thing to know, because I think in a way that this debate has to keep happening. It cannot be that whoever has the most money or whoever has the most resources just continues to do as they like. It cannot be. It's a bit of a you know wishful way of saying this. I I hope it is not. It won't be the way. On the other hand, you know. So you're right. After Google, the Maven event, so this Google Maven project has an importance in AI ethics because that is when Google developed and after that event, Google developed its principles, AI ethics principles, and published them. And that sort of inspired or incentivized others to do so. So the conversations it multiplied. It became more available. It helped raising awareness in the industry as well, in a way. On the other hand, the sort of like not so satisfying aspect of this case was that in the end, the principles that they came up with did not really preclude a case like Maven. Because particularly in the case of Maven, it was such that like if you The Google principles basically managed to say that, no, we cannot develop the AI system that you want for the purposes that you want, which is to use it to help, to use it in order to help the military goals, but we technically can still develop it so that you can do, say, like uh, search and rescue. The same technology, I mean, their principles didn't stop them from doing that. I mean, they, they didn't go ahead, but... The principles, if the next Maven case comes, the principles are not actually stopping that engagement. It just has to state a different objective. And I think that was sort of the problem with like what was this walk out and that uh, way of debating the principles or debating AI ethics gets you only so far, which is important. So I still think that they did, that was like a worthwhile move, but mm. it has to continue in a way that is not, outraged that actually goes into the details of how far do we want to go? I mean, it is a valid question to ask the Google employees as well. For example, what do you think about search and rescue AI AI systems that are going to help search and rescue? How do you think we should draw the line where we know that technology is often dual use? All of these questions that maybe after the initial reaction that says, hold on, don't go further... But then you have to sit down and make these like nitty gritty discussions. Okay, but like, don't go there, but like exactly go where? How, what is our position on this? What do you think is the right position? And really sort of laying it out rather than leaving it vague. What Google did in the end was leaving it quite vague. So did the employees win in a way in that case, but not really in the bigger picture, I would say.
1: Is the problem that the more we develop AI, the more or the easier it is to make it dual use. It's like, Educating a person who goes to a job fair and they stop at one desk and it's for a recruiting for a hospital, and then the next one over is recruiting for the army, and that person could do either job.
0: I would say, I think this is a technical prediction that I don't know the answer because you can also imagine that more sophisticated the AI systems become, their capability for dual use increases, but maybe the capability to design for certain goals and block certain uses could also become mm. So I don't know, like the technical prediction part, I actually don't know. I don't know if this is, I mean, logically, I think either mm. is possible, but I don't know what is a technical projection on it.
1: Right. That's interesting because it suggests a sort of, and this is really speculative out there, but uh, developing AI with Moral foundation built into it, such that it would object to being used for certain purposes. We obviously don't know how to do that at the moment. I mean, I um, but it's.
0: I think a, a, a. I mean, yes, but I think a different way of saying it could be like developing AI with clear value judgments built into it, such mm-hmm. that you know there's a internal stopping point for certain applications. So I think you know, I'm talking about a more straightforward, like the AI that we are more familiar with. Of course, as it becomes, I mean, if we think of it the AI becoming more like, you know, general intelligence, these type of blockages, I'm guessing is going to be harder to mm. keep. So that then what you say becomes more relevant, like a moral foundation, just like you're raising a human. But maybe there's like a more simpler version of doing this by just like, can we have sort of like, value judgments, as I said, built into the decision-making that it doesn't go to certain places. I don't know.
1: Fascinating. Conversation could go on for so much longer than we have. I really appreciate it. What would you like to tell people about how to find out more about you, what you're doing, how to follow you and get in touch?
0: So they can go to aiethicslab.com. So that is uh, where they will find all the information about what we are doing in AI Ethics Lab, um, the dynamics of AI principles, if they are curious about the principles, the puzzle solving and ethics model. So that's where they can find all of that information. They can also look at the Institute for Experiential AI Northeastern, and that is ai.northeastern.edu. And that's where I, as I said, where I'm doing the responsible AI work and research. So both of them are my babies in a way that I'm very excited doing the work with. And to connect personally with me, they can find me on Twitter, C-A-N-S-U. So, Jansu in Turkish, C-Cansu in English, I would say, in English reading. Mm-hmm. And all my contact information is available on my page on AI Ethics Lab. So, AI Ethics Lab slash Jansu dash Janja.
1: Right. And they can find your TEDx talk as well.
0: They can find my TEDx talk as well, How to Solve AI's Puzzles. <laughs>
1: oh, wonderful. Jansu Janja, thank you very much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's the end of the interview. Really fascinating to hear how this work is conducted. As you can tell, I don't mind asking my guests the hard questions. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Britain's Department for Transport announced proposed changes to the highway code to allow users of self-driving cars to watch TV and movies behind the wheel Even though, and this is a part I don't get, it will still be illegal for them to use a mobile phone from the driver's seat. They will be able to watch TV and movies if they are on built-in screens, and the drivers are prepared to take back control of the cars if necessary. The changes, which Trudy Harrison, the transport minister, called a major milestone in our safe introduction of self-driving vehicles, also say that the drivers will not be held responsible for a crash in this mode, and that insurance companies rather than individuals will be liable for claims. Now, there are as yet no vehicles or circumstances under which these proposed updates would be applicable as yet in Britain, but obviously they're thinking ahead. This really has to be interpreted narrowly before it becomes useful and not terrifying, though. In April 2021, the Department of Transport announced that it would allow hands-free driving in vehicles with lane-keeping technology on congested motorways, which is Clearly an application where self-driving vehicles can have an edge over human drivers because the environment is highly constrained, it's easy to train for, and it's very boring for human drivers who are likely to make mistakes through being tired or distracted. Whereas if you can just set the AV to stay in the lane on the M25 while you take a nap and wake up half an hour later when you've moved four miles, that's a useful piece of automation That can be deployed right now. Next week, my guest will be Justin Harrison, founder and CEO of Y.O.V., who is using AI to make a conversational copy of his mother and aims to do the same for other people's loved ones. Find out why and how he's doing that. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters.
0: That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net. Where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.